especially when, so they take, they'll do this, they'll do biblical themes. Um, they also do books of the Bible, like Old Testament, like helping you understand the prophets and uh, like what's going on in them. And it's, I mean, I've like watched a lot of them. They've, they've been really edifying. So anyways, okay, so, so getting this idea of holiness, unclean, and clean. Now I'm going to zoom into one topic in the book of Leviticus um, that pertains to this particular guy, this leper. Now, <clears throat> granted, Leviticus is not an easy book. It's a little strange. Often it's viewed as offensive to Western sensibilities because God is a really easy concept until he starts commanding things of you and asking you to do stuff and be stuff. And like in the garden, the garden of Eden, and God makes him a wonderful garden, and then he gives him a command saying, don't eat of this fruit. And you think, what's wrong with eating a fruit? So, like, why not eat the fruit? Now, are you going to obey God because you trust that he is good, that he's worthy of being obeyed? Or are you going to obey only when you completely understand exactly what he intends by that? And so sometimes when God commands things, you're like, I don't understand, so I'm not going to obey. Well, that's what the Bible calls rebellion. Um, I think there's, if you've ever heard it, there's the sermon, or not the sermon, the poem Invictus. has like this, 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 the last lines, which says, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Yeah, that's what the Bible calls rebellion. You're not the master of your fate. You're not the captain of your soul. God claims that right, and he alone. All right, so I think that's part of the reason why people are actually offended by this book of Leviticus, but God's commanding you to do things that you find reprehensible, and so you don't want to do it. All right, but here is Leviticus. And if you were a Jew living in Jesus' day, your daily life was going to be guided by this book. Now, in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, it's the longest section on any given topic, and that topic is leprosy. Like, far and away, 116 verses dedicated to the topic of leprosy, whereas all other topics in the book of Leviticus fall fall far shorter than that, more like 56. So there's like double attention given to this idea of leprosy. And one of the questions is why? Why was God so concerned with this concept of leprosy? And some just say pragmatically, well, it was about health. You don't want these diseases spreading to the camp. Well, there were other diseases that went to the camp that God did not spend as much time on saying, here's how to keep yourself clean and healthy. But in in the book of Leviticus, there's so much imagery and symbolism going on about what God is doing through sacrifices, through washings. You cannot say that it's simply about being healthy. In fact, God is using leprosy as a picture of a spiritual condition. Because when you read Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, which maybe you should do on your own time, I'm not, I'm just using verses, time management. Um, But when you're reading it, God will talk about all these different skin conditions. Now, it's okay. There's some skin conditions that are okay, and there's some that are not. Some skin conditions, you can get a rash, it's there, the priest inspects it, and it's not spreading, it says, okay, it's fine. But what the priests were, when you were coming to get inspected to see if you have leprosy, the one thing that particularly, that the priest was looking for was a skin condition that either, one, was spreading, or two, was underneath the skin. And so it's like, they would talk about hair follicles, if they turn white, in other words, the, the, the hair was dead immediately, or there's any sign that that, leprosy was underneath the skin, you were identified as a leper and therefore unclean. So the problem with leprosy, leprosy just in and of itself is a horrible blight because it's, leprosy is, is something that kind of eats, eats you alive, as it were. 
all other conditions in Leviticus, like if you became ritually unclean, all it simply took was X number of days that you just have to like step out for a little bit, seven days, wash yourself, you're back in. But the problem with leprosy is that you could not become clean again until leprosy was removed. So you remained in a state of being unclean. And then you were also probably going to die a leper. Most times you would die, and that was horrible. And also, when you were unclean, you were removed from society. You were removed outside of the camp. You could not really interact with any other people unless you kind of spread the leprosy to them. And most of all, you could not go to the temple and worship. You were removed. You were cut off from God and your society. So you were in every way an outcast. And many scholars looking at this say that leprosy is a particularly good imagery for what sin is to us. It, it is a corruption that's under the skin and it spreads and it rots us. It's, it's a vivid analogy. Our sin is a corruption that is deep within us. It affects our behaviors, our attitudes, our actions that produce Things that to God are morally repulsive and in the end destructive. So we were born with a disease that slowly eats you alive. And then your sin is something that separates from, separates you from God. We were born with a sin. We're outcast from God's. We're separated from Him and His community. Now, that I just outlined was in Leviticus 13. We'll talk about Leviticus 14 in a little bit. But you have to understand that that is the context in which this leper finds himself. He is the outcast of society. He is separated from God. And he is just like us in our sin. He is in a desperate plight. So, the leper turns to the only hope he has left in the universe. Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, this leper understands something about him. Because when he walks up to Jesus, he identifies him. He says, he comes to him and he like prostrates himself or bows before him, kneels before him, worships him, all your versions will have it. It's a broad word. And he bows before Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you will make me clean. Now, first of all, he's worshiping this man. He's bowing before this man. He's recognizing that there's something great and unique about him. And then he uses like the word Lord. He calls him Lord. Now, you could go to a king, you would kneel down, bow down, and call him Lord. So, you could say at the very least, he identifies Jesus as a great, great man, worthy of respect and honor. But it goes deeper than that. How great did he think Jesus was? Was he a prophet? A king? A revolutionary? A good teacher? No. Not merely those things, because of what he's asking him to do. He says, if you, if you will, you will make me clean. In the Old Testament, there's a story about a Syrian general. Now, Syrians and Israelites, they've never gotten along, have they? Still still at it. And so there's this general, and he was struck with leprosy. And as he's trying to figure out what's he going to do about this, he has a servant girl that was captured in a raid, and she was Israelite. And she says, oh, if Naaman had only been in the land of Israel where there's a prophet, he'd be healed. And the general says, So he goes to the Syrian king and says, hey, I want to go see this prophet. The king says, sure. So this king 
sends Naaman with a letter, and it says, this is what the letter says. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent my servant Naaman that you may cure him of his leprosy. No problem, right? The king of Israel immediately just gets afraid. He rips his cloak. He's distraught and afraid. And he says, am I God? Am I God to kill or make alive? That this man sends word to cure a man of his leprosy? He seeks a quarrel with him. In other words, he feels like the Syrian king is trying to provoke him into a fight by not healing his general. So his response is, cure this man. Am I God? Well, then Elijah, the man of God, steps in and says, we can take care of him. And so he has Naaman go wash in the, the river. Naaman's leprosy is cured. But notably, he doesn't say, the prophet healed me. He doesn't say, the prophet healed me. No, the God of the prophet healed me. So Naaman, when it's all said and done, says, quote, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. God did this. The prophet does not get the accolade, but God himself. So when the leper comes to Jesus and says, Heal me, if you will heal me, he's basically saying, If I am healed, it's because you yourself will it. So who does he say Jesus is? He's saying that Jesus is God because it's Christ's will whether or not he's going to be Jesus is not merely a prophet. He is God himself. He's not, talk to your God and tell me, will you heal me? Which explains why he's falling on his face before Jesus. Why explains why he's asking this of him. Yet even as he asks this, can you hear the undertones of fear? If, if you will, you can make me clean. Do you? desire to make me clean, Jesus? Because this, this man feels like the scum of the earth. This man knew that Jesus had the power to heal him, but the question was whether or not Jesus would actually show mercy and heal him. Now, to be honest, he's being more honest with the situation than I think sometimes we are. Death, disease, frail bodies, broken bones, Knees going out, losing your memory, an 80 to 90 year lifespan at best, are all evidences of God's wrath against our rebellion. Death, leprosy, all these things show that God is displeased and he's handed us over to death. We do not deserve salvation. God owes us nothing. We rebel. So this man feels an abandonment by God. And again, he has nowhere else to turn but to God. If your issues with God, you've got to turn to God. So he comes, he approaches Jesus, he falls on his face and asks him, cleanse me. And when he does so, he is recognizing his utter poverty before God. Only those who are willing to acknowledge their emptiness before God will actually turn to him for help. You cannot Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. You cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot heal yourself. You cannot bridge the breach that you've made between yourself and God. No, all you can do is fall at Jesus' feet and say, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
So we have to turn to Christ. And when we do, what will we find? Well, we'll find what this leper found. A God who is rich in mercy. A God who is rich in love and compassion. Because Jesus looks down with compassion on this man, with decaying, yucky, stinky flesh, he reaches down and touches him and says, I will be clean. Now, when we look at the miracles Jesus did, he did not have to touch people. He could be cities away and say, your daughter is healed, and they're healed. But Jesus is aware of how repulsive this man is. He's aware of how ostracized this man feels. And he has not, he's probably, unless leper, you know, let's had a friend who's a leper. He's probably not been touched by another human being for months, if not years. But Jesus touches him. The first touch this man may have felt is the loving touch of his Savior. And Jesus is not filled with repulsion for him. He's filled with compassion and love. And he touches the untouchable, and he loves the unlovable. And immediately, this man's leprosy was clean. So, when it happens, Jesus says, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. You mean, I get to go to the temple again? You can't. You can go back to your place of worship. You can do that. And go. Go make the sacrifices that Moses prescribed. And notice, not to be made pure, but as proof that you are pure. Now, the, uh, offer the gift that Moses commanded. So this is prescription. I said there's Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14. Now, if you think Leviticus is weird, I think Leviticus 14 is probably the weirdest of all. Because like, leprosy really stands out as something unique. And, and, the, and the ritual to become clean has a very weird and unique picture. So first of all, you would have to give a, a lamb as a sacrifice. That was going to just be part and parcel. But almost all atonement for sin involved that. But in this time, you had to bring two birds, a dove, hyssop, and a cedar branch. And one of those doves was going to be slaughtered, and its blood mixed with water, and then the cedar wood and the hyssop and the other bird were dipped in it. Now, cedar wood and hyssop are kind of purifying agents. So, and so then the, the bird with the blood would be sent away into the wilderness, and then the person would be splashed with like the blood water. Weird, right? Splashed with the blood water. Then he'd have to go wash himself. And then he'd wait seven days, and then he'd come back, and then adding to the strangeness, would shave all the hair off the body. All the hair was removed. Now, the, the pictures of the birds, it's, we see this in the Old Testament. That the idea is that you are purified by someone else's death. And, and the dove is like, your sin is taken away from you. But they're like, what is going on with the shaving? 
When Naaman, the Syrian, came out of the Jordan River and his leprosy was cleaning, it said his, his skin was white like a newborn babe. And when you shave all the hair off of you, you look like a grown-up newborn infant. You sat there looking grand, fresh, and new. So when that leper went to the temple and he washed with blood and he cleansed with water, every moment he's doing that, he's got to be thinking of Jesus. Jesus just did that for him. Because here is the curious cost of healing. Here, here is the precious price of our salvation. The Bible tells us that every time an animal died in sacrifice, it was not the thing that was purifying sin. Ultimately, it was pointing forward to the, the sacrifice that was actually going to purify for sin. If we're going to be healed from the effects of sin, then someone has to die. So three years later, after Jesus healed this leper, three years later, it was Jesus who hung on the cross, dying, so we could be healed. And we are cleansed by the blood, the death of Christ. And when that man sends a second dove into the wilderness, it represents that in order for man to come into the presence of God and live in God's kingdom, someone has to bear the rejection that we deserve. So three years later, it was Jesus on the cross, hanging on a tree, getting utterly overwhelmed and ultimately rejected by his father as he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when that man washed himself and then shaved himself to look like a brand new infant, it was because it was by the death of Christ that we are given new life and united to Jesus Christ by faith. We are what is called born. And isn't it curious that Jesus says, see that you say nothing to anyone? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> he's, he, maybe he's getting it. And he's like, why would I not tell anybody about this? And so the, the other Gospels tell us this. This Gospel doesn't particularly bring up this point, but he goes and tells everyone. That was his response. The guy didn't stay silent. He was going around. Now, you think, like, what's so wrong with that? He's excited. Well, those Gospels also report that Jesus was immediately flooded by crowds. People, like, so packed in, he couldn't do ministry anymore. He had to kind of slip away. So, as much as Jesus showed compassion and desire to heal, he was after something much more crucial, much more cosmic. The, the leprosy is the symptom of the disease, which is sin. Jesus came to get rid of the sin and thereby undo all leprosy. There's this um, atheist, young, 20s, named David G. McPhee. Um, and he writes this, quote, Christians believe, as is reported in the New Testament scriptures, that Jesus of Nazareth healed ten men with leprosy. It sounds like an astounding feat, but compared to Jacinto Kovit, who saved thousands of lives when he developed the vaccine that protected us from it, and in 1988, COVID was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his anti-leprosy vaccine. So, while the promise of Jesus' healing power is a centerpiece of the Christian myth, the demigod's results leave something to be desired when compared to the rigor of man's scientific inquiry. Quote. 
Now, what we are to understand about Jesus' healing is that it is a picture. These nine miracles that we're going to study, they're just a picture. Again, his ultimate aim is not to find, is not to cure all the leprosy per se right now, but to cure sin. If he had wanted to, he could have cured the whole world. But Jesus was pointing to something greater. Jesus is after the heart of the problem to cure us from sin and absorb the judicious punishment that we deserve. The reason why we have things like leprosy is judicious punishment for our rebellion. Now, the first three miracles, bada-bing, bada-bing, bada-boom, and then there's a scripture. Isaiah 53. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. But upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Okay, I quoted more of Isaiah 53. But there's a little pointing us to Isaiah 53. There is a day coming when Jesus is going to do what all the king's horses and all the king's men and all the king's scientists could never do. He will completely undo all of sin and its effects. It will all be washed away. But that day belongs to those who have fallen at Jesus' feet asking, if you will, you can cleanse me. You, all of us, we must turn to Christ. We are out of options. We have nowhere left we have nowhere left to be Jesus Christ. If you will, he will make you clean. Christ will say, I will. So as we go into communion, let's fix our hearts on Christ.
One thing I was hoping to kind of show in the sermon, the video, and talk about Leviticus is that the life and ministry of Jesus Christ was not done in a theological vacuum. It was preceded by the Old Testament. Granted, at times the Old Testament is strange, confusing, sometimes offensive to us. I think the offense is on our part, God's. Much in the same way that Jesus can be strange, confusing, and sometimes offensive. Nothing new there. What I'm hoping to show you is that you really cannot fully understand Jesus' life and ministry apart from the Old Testament. You can't understand the implications of the cross without understanding Leviticus. The Bible is a whole story. You have to understand the whole picture or to see it the most clearly. You, you probably can't begin to fathom for the disciples. When the light bulb came on and they saw the connection, like how excited they were to understand. Like I'm, I would argue probably but they were, at times, just as confused by some of these rituals as we are. And what up? Why are we doing this? But then, when they see Christ's ministry, his resurrection, you, you get wonderful, like, every New Testament epistle points back 
and Old Testament scripture just seeing, see it, see it, see it, see it, see it. They see it everywhere. You get the book of Hebrews, it just kind of highlights it. And so in the same way, like, we've got, a, we've got an advantage. We know what Christ did. We can look back and see some of these pictures. A lot of it is that picture, picture. Reenacted again and again and again. And you can start seeing how Christ fulfilled those pictures. Sometimes not. Granted, there's also a part when, like, you're cleansing for leprosy, you, like, dip your ear, your thumb, and your toe, and blood, and oil. I'm still trying to figure that out. Like, oh. I think the, I think the, and then you're anointed with oil, which I think is the Holy Spirit. The oil almost always represents the Holy Spirit. It makes you new. So, like, we don't see as dimly as they do. Yep. And there was a Passover, and there's a meal. There's a meal that we celebrate now. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. Do things, saying, This is my body, picture, broken for you. Do this remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, This is my blood, picture. This death, life poured out for you. Do this. When we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he arrives. He's coming back, like I said. He's going to undo what all the king's horses and all the king's men, all the king's scientists and philosophers, and everything this world has tried to overcome. He will do it. Put your hope in him. So stand as we close. Um, there's a time of refreshment. I saw lots of refreshments coming in. But also is a time to fellowship, kind of share life with each other, share time.